0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
1: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: On this episode, did ancient Romans find their way to America?
2: It's entirely possible that they did come up the Mississippi and then cut east back across that way and backtrack a little bit. Or they could have come across the Appalachian Mountains. That's a tough hike. But then again, these Roman soldiers would have had a memory of Hannibal crossing the Alps with elephants a couple hundred years earlier. So I picture them saying, you know, if Hannibal could do it with elephants the Alps, we can cross the Appalachians.
0: Did you know you can now stream episodes of this podcast on your mobile device? All you need is my new Conspiracy Unlimited app. It's absolutely free, and it's available for both iOS and Android devices. If you're a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member, pay attention. You can now stream premium content from your mobile device. My free Conspiracy Unlimited app for iOS and Android. Available from the App Store and Google Play. Get yours today and start streaming Conspiracy Unlimited on your mobile device.
1: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett pursuing the truth wherever it leads exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs Richard Serrett.
0: Welcome to your Wednesday. Well, it's always great fun when writer Dave Brody drops by. David's an avid researcher in the subject of pre-Columbian exploration of America, including the Templar Knights. His fictionalized accounts of these possible visitations bring history to life. Dave's a Boston Globe best-selling fiction writer, a graduate of Tufts University and Georgetown Law School. He's a former director of the New England Antiquities Research Association, and he has frequently appeared as a guest expert on documentaries airing on History Channel, Travel Channel, PBS, and Discovery Channel. He's been with me a number of times on Coast to Coast AM and this podcast. All of his Templars in America series have been Kindle top 10 bestsellers. His latest is Romerica, a novel, Roman artifacts in America. Hey, David, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you?
2: I'm doing great. Pleasure to be back with you.
0: The last time we spoke, we were talking about your book, Treasure Templari, Templars, Nazis, and the Holy Grail. And this time around, you're tackling Roman artifacts in America, a fictionalized story. Just give us a thumbnail sketch of the main protagonists and what this book is about.
2: Sure. So, you know, my focus on, on most of the books in this series is exploration of America before Columbus. And I usually focus uh, on the Templars. But periodically over the past 10, 12, 14 years, I I stubbed my toe against Roman era artifacts. And I don't really pay, haven't really paid that much attention to them over the years, just because they seem to be uh, outliers or, or one-offs or whatever. But I got, I got a little more focused on it recently. And I, and I went down that rabbit hole, and I was really blown away, Richard, by the number of Roman era artifacts, both in the Northeast coast of mass, uh, America and also uh, in the Ohio River Valley. And it just seemed like there were too many of these to be you know, lost artifacts or, or hoaxes or whatever. So I went deep down it and, and sort of my, my rule of thumb is if there's enough evidence that I feel like as, as a lawyer, cause that's my training, I'm, a, I'm an attorney by trade. If there's enough evidence, that I feel like I could convince a jury and that's usually enough evidence to base a book on. And well, since we're here talking about it, obviously there was enough evidence.
0: It's funny, I was doing some a little online research about evidence for Roman artifacts in North America and up pops a skeptic from Boston University, no less, who says, no, there's absolutely oh. no, no evidence. But let's talk a little bit about, now I, I realize this is a fictionalized account, but it is based on actual historical artifacts. But in the book, there is this, Roman-era ship that is discovered off the coast of Massachusetts near Plum Island. Was there any discovery there, or is that based on perhaps a shipwreck found somewhere else?
2: So the whole, the whole thing started, um, a friend of mine who happens to be interested in, in treasure hunting and that kind of thing called me a few years ago and said, hey, you know, I, I stumbled upon a shipwreck off the coast, and I think it might be Roman-era And he's been trying to substantiate that. It's it's still an open question, Uh, but that got me thinking, and sort of got me. That was the first time I I, I even thought about that. And then about four years ago, there was a major storm, and uh, a husband and wife went out to Plum Island, which is a a barrier island off the. Northern coast of Massachusetts, and they were metal detecting, which they commonly did after storms. And they came across a cache of about twenty-five Roman era coins up and down the beach. And this was not the first time Roman era coins have sort of washed ashore after a big storm in that area. And a newspaper wrote a story about it, and so I started looking at that. And and again, I I, I use the expression I went down the rabbit hole, but I started looking for old accounts of Roman era artifacts, Roman era coins. And, and I, I just found so much of it. But it, it does go back to this idea of could a ship, a Roman-era ship, have crossed the Atlantic, either on purpose or because they sort of got blown off course? And the answer is clearly yes. I mean, e- even the the Triremes, which are the Roman-era battleships, they were designed mostly for coastal travel and, and you know, within the Mediterranean. But uh, Julius Caesar took those ships and sailed them up to up to the British Channel through the, you know, along the Atlantic, uh, up up the Atlantic to the British Channel. So they were definitely seaworthy. And again, whether they were just blown off course, they came across the Atlantic or or, or had a destination. Those ships, people don't realize the ships in in that era, first built by the Phoenicians and then the Romans later copied them, were much larger than the ships Columbus came across with in 1492. So, you know, again, going back to the Phoenicians, these people were expert navigators, expert seafarers whether they did cross is an open question whether they could have crossed they definitely could have
0: there is also a Roman sword I think found near Oak Island if memory serves
2: right and I actually looked into that I couldn't really substantiate that um, a lot of the artifacts that I found you know coins are easy to date that's the other date if you can't read the date you can see the the profile of the of the emperor or whatever is on it and then a lot of the other artifacts I found uh, whether in Mexico or Brazil or in, or, in, or in America, uh, were either dated via something called optics, o- OSL, optically stimulated luminescence testing, or maybe some carbon dating uh, with uh, other artifacts found with them, because you, you can't carbon date a coin, obviously. But there, were, there was other scientific sort of evidence indicating a Roman-era Providence for these artifacts. They soared up around Oak Island. I couldn't find anything that really brought it to the level where I wanted to, again, using this analogy, bring it to the jury. It just seemed like it wasn't quite there. I try, yeah. even though these books are f- fiction, you know, I'm going to be on, on with people like you, Richard, you're going to push back on some of this stuff. And so I, I want to make sure that I'm not overselling my case and using artifacts and evidence that's not really sustainable.
0: Now, you mentioned these coins and they've been found uh, in New England, Ohio River Valley, most of which seem to date back to the 2nd century A.D. So what's happening in the Roman Empire in the 2nd century A.D. which might explain why these artifacts were moved over here?
2: Exactly. So I started thinking, so, you know, if the Romans came, why did they come? When did they come? What were they doing here? And uh, I came across a book written, it was about 10 years ago, by a, a researcher by the name of Rick Osman, who lives out in Indiana. And he had a theory, there was a number of what he can say ancient Roman-era forts strung across the Ohio River Valley. He wrote a whole book about this possibility that the Roman Ninth Legion, this is a legion of, uh, of Roman soldiers that were stationed in the early parts of the second century in, at Hadrian's Wall, They essentially disappeared from history in the early 2nd century, And, and Osman theorized that perhaps, for whatever reason, they came across and they built these Roman forts in the Ohio River Valley, and they sort of account for all these coins and other artifacts found out there. Well, I went a little deeper into the Ninth Legion, and I found evidence that, between the time they disappeared, uh, or after the time that history thought they disappeared, they may have actually ended up in Israel, deployed to Jerusalem to put down something called the Bar-Kopka Revolt. Your listeners may, may remember that around 68 AD, there was something in Jerusalem called King Herod's War where the Romans came in and basically put down a revolt by the Jews You're trying, trying to take the city back from the Romans. And then about 60 years later, there was a second result led by a guy named Simon Barkopka. And again, uh, the Romans put that down. Uh, some of you may know the story of Masada, the mass suicide by Jewish fighters uh, out in the desert, a, a mountain fort, which now which gave rise to the name the Masad. Uh, but that all happened during uh, around 130 AD during the Barkopka Rebellion. So it may be that the, the, the ninth legion did, did cross, as Osman suspects, but they did so first by, go, by by going first to Jerusalem and then coming across. And if they went to Jerusalem, that opens up the whole possibility of the treasure. That's the Templar treasure. There was something called the, the Copper Scroll of Qumran, which is one of the the Dead Sea Scrolls that was discovered and the copper scroll lists all the treasures that were hidden during this rebellion to allow the Jews to later go back and find them. And the, and the present day value of those treasures, which by the way, have never been found is about $1.5 billion. So in, in modern dollars. So the, the possibility is that these, this, this ninth legion was deployed to Jerusalem, put the rebellion down, stumbled upon this treasure somehow and said, hey, we can either share this with the authorities or we can get the heck out of here, go someplace and you know, have our, have our way with it. And that's one of the possibilities in my book. And that's sort of where I go with it. And that would explain why so many of the artifacts and the coins are second century. That would have been the date that the, the Ninth Legion came across.
0: The Copper Scroll may also, according to some researchers, contain clues as to the whereabouts of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, do you get involved in, in that aspect in, in Romerica, the possibility they brought
2: the Ark over here? I didn't do the Ark just because I feel like it's a little bit cliche. It's been done a number of times, but you're, as you said, it's definitely a possibility. I instead focused on the golden menorah. We know that the Romans ended up with a golden menorah a little earlier after after King Herod's war. There's something called the Arch of Titus. Which it's a carving in, in Rome which shows the emperor's troops parading through the streets of Rome with all the, the war booty, including the, the golden menorah. But in my story, I use that as a possibility for one of the things that may have been brought across.
0: So this Jewish uprising that the Ninth Legion may have participated in putting down, how to explain then presence of these Barakoba coins in the Ohio River? Is that to suggest that some of the Participants in the Jewish uprising came with the Roman soldiers, with the Ninth Legion.
2: Yeah, that, so that so you know we just don't know the answer to that. In in my story, I fictionalize uh, and hypothesize that that's a possibility. I pictured a situation where at some point the war is winding down, and there are some holdouts, and and they're captured, and they essentially ransom their lives by saying to their capturers, in this case the Ninth Legion, "Hey, we've got these temple treasures. Let us live. Take us with you. We'll share it with you." And together they come across, make their way to the Ohio River Valley for whatever reason. And that would explain a lot of not only the Roman-era artifacts that are in the Ohio River Valley, but also the fact that so many of those artifacts have Jewish themes. They have Hebrew writing on them. One in particular, the Bat Creek Stone, which was in, in Tennessee, has Paleo-Hebrew writing with the translation, a comet for the Jews. Uh, now that's important because that was the battle cry during the Barkhapka revolt. Barkhapka in Hebrew means son of the star. In other words, a comet, that was his name. And so a comet for the Jews was sort of a play on that. And that was the battle cry of the revolt. And then to see that carved on a burial stone in the Ohio River Valley, by the way, the, the wooden artifacts found with that burial stone were carbon dated to second century. But to find that tie back to barkhopka in the Ohio River Valley in Hebrew, I thought was really significant. Bar- There's also some coins you mentioned, barkhopka coins, found in the Ohio Valley, again, with Kopka's face on one side and the Temple of Jerusalem on the other. But these were pretty specific pieces of evidence. You know, they, they got there somehow. I I know, Richard, you do a lot of this and you hear this kind of things all the time. And I, and I started looking for possible explanations for how these coins in particular have come across. And I read some really funny things. I had one archaeologist said, well, maybe seagulls uh, picked up the coins in the Mediterranean region and <laughs> oh, flew across oh, the Atlantic and dumped them on our shores. I just sort of yeah, I literally laughed out loud at that one. Or or maybe they use them roman coins as ballast on colonial era ships and i just thought to myself what they didn't have enough stones and you know or rocks they could <laughs> use as ballast. they have to use coins coins have value that made no sense and or, or maybe i heard one guy say maybe a grandfather at the beach with his grandkids wanted to hide them so the grandkids could find them and so i'm picturing a grandfather grabbing his nickels dime pennies out of his change compartment in his car perhaps Typically, people don't go to the beach with their Roman-era coins and then hide them for their grandkids to find them. It just didn't make a lot of sense. But um, there, there, something happened. There was some way that these coins, second century Roman coins, found their way to America. And it wasn't in the mouth of a seagull. It's kind of the equivalent
0: of swamp gas to explain UFO sightings, isn't it?
2: Yes, you, you could you could see that happening once perhaps, but 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 to, to say over and over and over again that every one of these so again you could have you could potentially have one seagull a random seagull with one random coin dropping it on the beach and you could see that happening one time, but we're talking eight or ten at least different just in New England, Roman coin finds, not to mention the ones in the Ohio River Valley. And oh, we hear sometimes, well, maybe a collector dropped them. So Richard, you and I, why don't we go to the beach? I'll grab the beach umbrella and the towels. And if you could grab a cooler and the coin collection, we'll meet at the beach. Again, people don't bring their coin collections to the beach. Exactly.
0: So how would they explain the Hanukkah Fort in Little Miami River, southwestern Ohio? Tell me about this remarkable find.
2: Isn't it remarkable? Because I remember seeing this many years ago, and I hadn't really put the pieces together. This is um, a drawing of uh, an ancient fort. No one really knows how old it is. It was done in 1823, as you said, in Ohio. It was drawn by the Army Corps of Engineers. And the fort itself is shaped like a menorah, a Hanukkah menorah, with an oil lamp on top of it. Now, the, the the Hanukkah celebration memorializes the fact that there wasn't enough oil to keep the lamp lit for more than a day, but God miraculously let it let it stay lit for eight days. And so the oil lamp is a symbol of Hanukkah, as, of course, is the menorah, the eight eight candles signifying the eight days of Hanukkah. So this design is very clearly a menorah with an oil lamp. It's very clearly Hanukkah-related. And again, it, it speaks to the idea. And oh, by the way, it appears to be second century. It was found in a, in a burial mound that has other artifacts that are second century. So it... it, it I'm sorry, the, the fort itself is, is next to a burial mound that has artifacts that are second century. But again, it, it speaks to the idea that something was going on with both Roman influence and Jewish influence in that Ohio River Valley all time back to second century.
0: Tell me about the Brandenburg Stone in Kentucky. What is this?
2: So the Brandenburg Stone, again, we're going, we're, we're following the, the Ohio River across, across the valley there. And most of the artifacts seem to be centered in that area. The Brandenburg Stone in, is in an area of particular significance. The reason why this is so important is, is it has Welsh writing on it. Now, for a long time, historians in that area believed that this was evidence of Prince Madoch. Madoch was a Welsh prince. He lived either in the 11th or the sixth century. There may have been two Madochs. We're not quite sure which one may have come over. But the story is that one of the Prince Madochs came across once or twice, or maybe even three times, to, to America. Uh, And this Welsh writing was evidence, people thought, of of that legend. The problem is most of the other artifacts are not 6th or 11th century in the area. They are 2nd century. Now, the 9th Legion, which was based in Great Britain during the 2nd century, would have had Welsh members belonging to it. Again, A a legion had not only soldiers, of course, but all sorts of camp followers, and many of them would have spoken Welsh in that area. And so it's entirely possible that when these people came over, that they some of them, at least, spoke Welsh. And this Brandenburg stone essentially is a, is, is a land division. It talks about inheriting land to, to different sons uh, inheriting different land and marking the land. It was a very British type of thing to do back then, uh, was to divide the land up amongst the sons. Other Welsh artifacts were also found in that area, Welsh armor. And that was found, interestingly, by a gentleman by the name of George Rogers Clark, who was the brother of the William Clark of Lewis and Clark fame. And that may tie in a little bit with why President Jefferson, who himself was Welsh, was so interested in sending Lewis and Clark further up the Ohio River Valley, up the Missis- Missouri River, to find out if indeed the Welsh Indians, the Mandan, were up there. But it all sort of ties together. It was interesting that that this guy Clark, the brother of the Lewis and Clark, uh was so involved in discovering a lot of these Welsh burial areas, the armor, the forts. Uh, there's a second century fort in an area called, uh, across from Louisville, Kentucky, Clarksville, named after Clark. But a lot of things in that area, uh, and I thought the tie to Lewis and Clark was very interesting as well.
0: If they were building these fortifications up and down the Ohio Valley, there must have been a sizable presence here. How many do we know from history? How many soldiers would have been in the Ninth, the ninth Legion?
2: So if you include the sort of the, the hangers-on of, of a legion, there's probably about 10,000 people, but I, I don't envision that they all would have come across. I think it would have been a scenario where the senior members of the legion would have sort of taken this treasure from Jerusalem and divided it up maybe, uh, you know, 100 or 200 or 300 ways, Take take a couple ships across, as opposed to sharing it with everybody. And that that's, that's who would have come over. I don't think it would have been thousands of people coming over, at least not originally. I think once they would have arrived here, they, they, they would have found a place to settle. They may have then had to go back and forth a few times for trade, resupply, maybe bring some families over. But I think originally, again, just because of, of pure reasons of greed, there was no reason to share the $1.5 billion of treasure you know, more ways than you needed to. So I, I'm I'm picturing a scenario where it was a relatively few number came over, uh, and then there was periodic trade later on, which accounts for some of the other artifacts, which are not second century, but third or fourth century.
0: And would they have come up the Ohio River or the Mississippi River in in these ships, or did they did they cross over by land? How did how did they settle in these diff- different areas?
2: Yeah, good question. I struggled with that because you know and i struggled even with the bigger question why did they come to the ohio river valley why did they just stay in new england and i don't really have a great answer for it it's entirely possible that they did come up the mississippi and then you know cut east back across that way and backtrack a little bit or they could have come across you know the appalachian mountains that's a tough hike but then again these you know the, these these roman soldiers would have had a memory of of hannibal crossing the Alps with elephants a couple hundred years earlier. So they, you know, I picture them saying, you know, if Hannibal can do it with elephants, the Alps, we can cross the Appalachians with, uh, you know, without. So it's possible they did that. I'm still not sure why they would have felt the need. You know, perhaps it was just a situation where the natives on the, on the East Coast were hostile and the ones in the Ohio River Valley were not. I, I just don't have an answer for that. And, and again, it could have been either from the East or they could have come up the Mississippi and, Hunger right and coming from the West.
0: Back to more of my conversation with author David S. Brody when Conspiracy Unlimited Returns. Shields Up! Sounds like something out of Star Trek. In fact, it's a great new special from my friends at GetTheTea.com. The Shields Up! special includes one bottle of Pre and Probiotic, one bottle of Coral Sea, and one package of Life Change Super Tea. You get a two-month supply of the Pre and Probiotic, Pro and prebiotics contain organic Jerusalem artichoke. Probiotics boost your immune system, support overall gastrointestinal health, healthy blood pressure levels, healthy cholesterol levels and benefits your overall wellness. It helps to control the balance of healthy and harmful bacteria and may aid in calcium metabolism. You get a two-month supply of Coral C. Coral C is coral calcium plus vitamin C. Coral minerals provide all natural health benefits. Calcium and minerals are needed for every vital function of your body, from pumping your heart, to cell division, to DNA replication, and can help with alkalizing your body. Vitamin C is required for the proper development and function of many parts of the body. And the Shields Up Special from Get the Tea gets you a one-month supply of Super Strength Tea. Super Strength Tea benefits great digestion and may aid in boosting your immune system and may help cleanse your body from unwanted intruders. Start feeling rejuvenated right now. Get your pre and probiotic. Your Coral Sea and your Life Change Super Tea. The Shields Up Special from GetTheTea.com. Order yours today and use the code UNLIMITED and your order ships absolutely free. It's the Shields Up Special from GetTheTea.com.
1: If there's one thing money can't buy, it's sanity. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited. <laughs> With Richard Serrett. David
0: Brody, the author of Romerica: Roman Artifacts in America is here. Is there anything in the oral tradition of uh, Aboriginal Americans that might perhaps provide a clue? Like, for example, did any of these nations have interactions possibly with with Roman soldiers?
2: Yeah, so I, I, that's a huge part of my story. Um, there's a There's a recurring character in my books. Her name is Astarte. She's now a seventeen-year-old young woman in this book, but she, in her whole life, she's been told that she is of Mandan ancestry. Mandan are a tribe of Native Americans um, who were basically wiped out by the smallpox in the mid-1800s. But they're described by early settlers and early pioneers as the "quote unquote" white Indians. And she's exploring in this book the possibility that the, that that her tribe, the Mandan, are the descendants of. These Roman explorers, either direct descendants or perhaps the Roman soldiers intermarried with Native American tribes in the area and created sort of a hybrid you know, hybrid race, but that uh, or ethnicity. But she explores that, and 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 I get into you know, for example, there was an observer by the name of George Catlin who lived with the tribe for about six months, and and I'll read a quick quote. He said, "I am fully convinced that the Mandan have sprung from other origin." than of the other Native American tribes. A stranger in the village is first struck with different shades of complexion and various colors of hair. And he is at once almost disposed to exclaim, these are not Indians. And he talks about other cultural things, other living practices, not just their appearance, um, to conclude that they are, they, unlike all the other Indians he lived with, are not of the same origin. Uh, and this is interesting because you know later, uh, or even before that, actually, Tom, uh, President Jefferson sent Lewis and Clark up looking for the Mandan tribe uh, because he was curious about this, this these Welsh Indians. They, they spoke a language similar to Welsh, he himself being of Welsh origin. Uh, so, so the idea that there are Native American echoes of this story is, is, very, is a very real one. And the, again, the Mandan tribe, had they not been pretty much wiped out by the smallpox uh, outbreak, we'd have better answers. But uh, that's, a, that's a real possibility.
0: Another recurring character, of course, uh, throughout your work is the historian Cameron Thorne. Invariably in your books, there's always someone else involved involved. In this hunt, in this race, they're being they're being tracked or traced by some other, usually some other nefarious type character. In this case, you describe her as a rather sultry Mossad agent who is threatening Cam's life. Tell me about this character.
2: Right. So I don't want to give away the storyline too much, but but um, Cam is now single. As a, 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 through most of the books, he wasn't, so he is now, and he, recently so. So he's sort of struggling with you know, is it time to start? Dating again. So, look, all these stories are sort of formulaic to some degree, and you need to have a little bit of romantic tension. But more to the point, as far as the plot goes, because we're dealing with ancient uh, Jewish artifacts, in particular, potentially the Golden Menorah, obviously Israel cares about that, and the Mossad cares about that. And there's sort of a geopolitical angle to this whole thing that if the, um, if, if the golden menorah and other temple treasures are discovered, that then opens the door to this whole idea of rebuilding the third temple. Uh, historians probably know that it was the, in the, in the, in the 10th century BC, uh, King Solomon built the first temple, and then it was destroyed by the Babylon, uh, Babylonians, I believe, destroyed it. I could be wrong about it, who destroyed it. Uh, then it was rebuilt by King Herod in the first century B.C., and that was destroyed in the uprising in 70 A.D. or whatnot. And 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 there we are. There's never been a third temple built, partly because there are Islamic uh, structures there, the Dome of the Rock, al uh Mosque. You can't just build around or over those things. But there are still some uh, Israelis who want to. And the consensus generally seems to be we can't rebuild the third temple until we first find all the instruments, the golden menorah, the candelabras, the the the, the table of shoebread, all the things that go part that go with it that God told us to put in there. If we can't find those, we can't rebuild. Well, if you do find those, all of a sudden that opens the possibility to potentially rebuilding, and now you have a just a, a you know World War III breaking out in the Middle East over trying to build in that area where so many religions uh, consider it so holy.
0: I mentioned this professor at Boston University who was asked the question about Roman ruins in America and was so quick to dismiss it. We hear this time and time again whenever anyone delves into pre-Columbian America. It is always countered with a very dismissive argument, not even an argument. Why is that, do you suppose? Why are academics so afraid Really, of this other narrative that there were many other civilizations that settled in America prior to Columbus.
2: Yeah, you know, I get that question a lot, Richard, and I know that other fellow researchers of mine oftentimes point to things like conspiracy theories, the government doesn't want us to know, they're hiding it from us. I don't think it's anything that nefarious. I think it's just basic human nature. These people have gone on record, for whatever reason, as saying there was nobody here before Columbus, and now. For them to sort of back off that or to be proven wrong, they would have egg on their face. And so I think it's just basically human human instinct. They just don't want to be humiliated. For a long time in academia, the sort of the giant in this area was, was a Harvard professor, and he won the, the Presidential Medal of, of Freedom and the Pulitzer Prize. And he basically said, Anybody who says that there was – he was the biographer of Columbus, okay, uh, Samuel Elliott Morrison was his name. And he basically said, if anybody goes against me on this and says somebody's here before my guy Columbus, essentially I'm going to make sure you don't get tenure. I'm going to make sure you, you, know, you, you don't get a great job. And so it was really academic suicide for a long time to go against Morrison on his Columbus was first belief. Now, he's been long since dead, but there's still vestiges of that, people who learned underneath him. So we still have that. And again, these people have been saying, you know, over and over again, in no uncertain terms, nobody was here before Columbus. And so it's hard to change their mind. Now, we're starting to, we're starting to turn the ocean line. We're more and more, uh, you know, I've been doing this for about uh, 12 years now. And I can tell you that when I first started saying things like, oh, people are here before Columbus, I'd have a lot of pushback. Now I say it, and mostly people just sort of nod and say, well, of course, it makes perfect sense that somebody was here before Columbus. Um, you know, I don't, I don't get the same kind of pushback a decade later as I did then. So we are slowly making headway on this. But I, again, I don't think it's a conspiracy. I just think it's it's human nature. Nobody, nobody likes to be told they're wrong, and nobody wants to admit they're wrong. We see that a lot today in the you know, in the world.
0: Presumably, if the Romans brought artifacts and left them here, they may have also taken artifacts from America and left them there. What do you think?
2: Boy, you know, I never really thought about that. I, um, it would it would it would make perfect sense, assuming they went back. I think instead of artifacts, I think it would be more trade items, such as copper. You know, for example, the um, the Bronze Age required huge amounts of copper. Ninety percent copper 10% tin, there was plenty of tin to be had along the southern coast of England, Cornwall, and around there. Copper was a little harder to come by. There were some copper supply, uh, copper deposits in, in Europe and Africa, but probably not enough to account for all of the bronze that was produced. Um, many historians believe that early Phoenician explorers came across and were mining and trading for copper in the Great Lakes region, in New England, Vermont had very, uh, Quebec as well, Vermont had very high copper uh, deposits. So I think if anything went back, it would have been copper and or just things that, that we saw during the colonial period with beaver skins, uh, fish, timber to Scandinavia would have been really important. Those are items that probably we would not be able to find today. They would have, They were carbon-based and biodegradable. And the copper, of course, would have changed into something else. So you'd have trouble finding evidence of that. But clearly there was trade going back and forth. It wasn't just a one-way road.
0: Right. And there is evidence of a large copper mining operation, I think, on the south shores of Lake Superior, if I'm not mistaken.
2: Huge. Yeah. The the um, It's called float copper. Um, and w- when the early pioneers arrived in that area, they said to the Native Americans, well, they just saw it and they said, who, who took all the copper? A lot of it's gone. And there are stories told by the native Americans of, you know, met hundreds of generations earlier that people came over and uh, white men came over and took it and, and traded for it and whatnot. And they've done some carbon dating on some of the timber that was found in one of these mines. And it dates back to, uh, about 2,500 years ago, I believe. And there was a shipwreck off the coast of Turkey, the Uluburu shipwreck recently, um, again, Phoenician error. And the purity of that copper uh, can only really be found in the Great Lakes region. And so the theory is that that ship might have been carrying Great Lakes copper as well. But yes, the the Lake Superior area had large, uh, large uh, amounts of float copper. And the great thing about float copper, as the name uh, attests to, you don't really have to dig for it very much. It just sort of sits on top of the ground. So it's a lot easier to get.
0: So it's possible then that the copper... That fueled the Bronze Age in the ancient world was shipped from North America to Europe in large Phoenician
2: ships.: Exactly. And that, it, to me, it always goes back to the Phoenicians. To, to me, that they were probably the first group that came across, you know we know they were expert seafarers and navigators. We know that their captains were under strict orders that if, if somebody was following you, you and, and you couldn't get away from them, you had to run your ship ashore. We can't give up our trade route secrets. You just we can't let people know what we're doing. We can't let people get hold of our boats and figure out how to build these ama- these amazing ships that we built. Now, eventually, the Romans did capture, uh, I believe it was a trireme during the Punic Wars, fourth century, third century B.C., somewhere in there. And it was funny they 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 figured out how to how to copy the construction of it, but they didn't realize that they first needed to let the timber season for a couple of years. And so they they built it right to exact specifications dropped it in the water, and of course it sank because the wood was still green. But eventually the Romans figured it out. But getting back to the Phoenicians, we know they, they circumnavigated Africa. We know they were up as far as uh, definitely Britain, probably Iceland in the North Sea. Um, and again, as I said earlier, they had ships much bigger than Columbus. They navigated by the stars. They could navigate at night. So it makes perfect sense that they would have come across, and the reason for that would have been the copper.
0: Is there any connection between some of these earthen mounds in the Ohio Valley and the Romans?
2: I think more of the Phoenicians. One of, and, I, and I wrote about this in an earlier novel called The Oath of Nimrod, talking about these, these giant skeletons, human skeletons found in the Ohio River Valley and these Native American legends that there were eight, nine, ten foot tall uh, warrior race in that area that eventually was killed off. And we go back to the Bible and we know that in the hills of Lebanon, which is the Phoenician homeland, there were tribes of giants. And so I've always thought that if the Phoenicians, uh, again, Lebanese in modern day terms, the Phoenicians, if they did come over to mine for copper, it makes sense they'd bring their, bring their, bring their biggest, strongest guys. Uh, and so that perhaps that's how the giants were introduced into the Ohio River Valley and you mentioned these burial mounds that in a couple of these burial mounds at least we find Phoenician writing and giant skeletons and wooden artifacts that date back to right around the time period we're talking even a little earlier. So there's there's a lot of even archaeological evidence indicating something was going on there. These these bones. And we're not talking giants fifteen or twenty feet tall. We're talking Eight, nine, ten feet. So it's a little bit, it's not, it's not fee, five, here. It's, it's, it's a little bit different than that. But these are still what we, we consider, um, you know, well larger than any humans that we have today.
0: So we have the, the Templars in America a series, which you've written about. Now we have the Romans in America. Can you tease a little bit? What, what, which civilization are you going to tackle next?
2: Yeah. And I've, I've also done the Brendan the Navigator, the Celtic legends in the, in the sixth century and, and, uh, the explorer um, uh, Tim Severin basically sailed a, a leather boat across from Western Ireland to Labrador back in the 1970s to prove that indeed Brendan the Navigator could possibly have crossed the Atlantic, as the legends say. So, uh, And then there's a lot of um, stone chambers in New England that seem to match those in, in the British Isles that would potentially be evidence of a fifth century Irish Celtic excursion. So so you got the Phoenicians, you've got the, the Romans, you've got the Irish. Um, we talked potentially about the Welsh with, with Prince Madoc. We've got the Templars, you know, at the other authors have written about the Chinese. It it's almost it would almost be news to me. It would be much more surprising if nobody came across than it would be that three or four or five different groups did. Um, I just think that you know, when I was a kid, I used to watch Star Trek with my father and, and uh, the introduction would be to, to, to seek out new life and new civilization, to boldly go where no one has gone before. That's the human condition. And and people understood that the Atlantic Ocean was, was not the end of the world. They weren't gonna fall off the edge. That, that, that's a wives tale. People didn't believe that. Educated people at least didn't believe that. Um, but there's always this human desire to go further and further, whether it be for economic reasons or otherwise. Um, and again, we we know the ancient Phoenicians were as far as Iceland. It's not that much further. Another hop, skip, and a jump to Greenland, and across to Labrador, down to Newfoundland, and then you're in New England. So it's it's you know it's really island hopping at that point. So I've always said I'd be more surprised to learn that nobody came. Before oh, Of course, we have the Vikings. I didn't even mention the Vikings in right. you know, the early 11th century. Yeah, that's the obvious one. Um, you know, we know for a fact that that's true. so I've always, And even between the Vikings and the Columbus, I've always said it'd be more surprising that, that the Vikings, once they had come over, the Norse had come over, that nobody else came over until Columbus. That, to me, makes no sense at all. Now we know that they were here. Why wouldn't they come back?
0: Right. It seems more likely that Columbus wasn't first. He may have been last. Uh, of course, there's the potential for the Minoans, the the ancient Egyptians. I'm
2: not I'm not sure about the Egyptians, Richard. They didn't they didn't love to seafare very much. They 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 would send the Phoenicians out to do their to do their exploring for them. They they were more they didn't love they didn't love the open ocean so much, but they could have definitely sent the Phoenicians who were sort of the merchant marine of the ancient world on their behalf. I agree with you on that and and there is evidence as as I think you're hinting at stuff down in, you know, the, the, obviously the, the pyramids in, in Central America and other, other sites in Central and South America that do indicate some kind of Egyptian communication or, or, or uh, trade routes or whatever.
0: Romerica, Roman artifacts in America. How do we get a copy?
2: Uh, easiest way, um, Amazon, uh, There it's available both as a paperback and as a Kindle version. I do try to make all of these books affordable—less uh, f- than 15 bucks for the book, less than five bucks for the Kindle. You know, I want people to read these. These are—they're—they're they're chock full of history, but they're also fun. I try to make them—you know—roller coaster rides, bare knuckle things. But you're learning something along the way because that's the kind of book that—that that I like to read. But again, I do try to make them um, price affordable. I want people to read these. I want people to open their eyes to the possibility that. The history is a lot different than we were taught in school. And uh, I'm I'm very passionate about this. You can probably tell in my voice and I I very much appreciate you having me on and let me talk about it.
0: Oh, my pleasure. It's always a, a great ride. Thank you so much, David.
2: Thank you, Richard. Have a great day.
0: Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be right back to share a few details about an upcoming episode. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. A donation of $50 a month places you in the star chamber. $20 a month is the whistleblower tier and a donation of just $10 per month makes you a truth seeker. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor, Go to patreon.com forward slash strangeplanet. patreon.com forward slash strangeplanet. Coming up next time, a Polish journalist discusses how communism caused irreparable harm to the Polish national psyche and why he sees history repeating itself here in North America. Until then, I'm Richard Sarat. So long for now.
1: A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serret drops every Monday, Wednesday and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com your mind that is all for now oh and remember to share and give a 5 star review because we have huge egos and need love we're like cats we need
2: we need constant petting